Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cush. Welcome to the Miracle Larry podcast, where I'm joined by best friend Larry Kelly. And today we have a special guest. Larry, why don't you introduce our guest? Hi, Jack. How are you? Excellent. I'm excited about today, but I'm a little tired, as you well know. We had a very wild weekend. We had a very wild weekend, Jack. I'll tell the audience about. All right, go ahead. <laughs> but I'm really excited about today. This uh, we're, we're, we're sort of copying from Jason Bateman's podcast. And we have surprise guests. And today we have uh, <laughs> Jessica Montanaro. And uh, Jessica is, our podcast today is going to be, we, we take different angles on um, COVID. And this is all going to be about the nurses' experience, and uh, th there's no one better to talk about the nurses than Jessica. Um, she's been doing it for a while. Um, um, she's, um, I, I, to tell you how long she's been a nurse, I don't know specifically other what I can repeat from newspaper articles, and stuff, but I'll let her tell you that. But Jessica was my admitting nurse, um, and, uh, very influential in COVID, in nursing, and uh, uh, big with the union and nurses' rights, and uh, and and what the nurses went through during COVID. And uh, so, Jessica, we're going to throw questions at you, and you just go. And but this is Jessica Montanaro. Hi. <laughs> yes, we're delighted to have you here. I I met Jessica. And had a relationship with Jessica over the phone just by calling the hospital when Larry was in there, and uh, and and she was a standout to talk to, and even <laughs> now a greater standout to meet and know. So Jessica, Larry, and I in past episodes have talked about, um, you know, how we led up to COVID and whatnot. You know, the for me the um, the uh, you know it was like oh no a moment when he's admitted the. Oh, oh my God, no, it was when he was in the ICU and you admitted him to the ICU. But before you admitted him to the ICU, what was going on in your life? You know, um, was life smooth and easy and nothing going on? Or when did you know that COVID was happening? Um, you mean in my personal life or in the medical world? Yeah, I mean, your personal life and what you bring to work. I mean, uh, um, so, you know, um, um, Larry was our second COVID patient in the ICU. He was our second COVID, my first admission, uh, our second COVID patient. Um, but pr just prior to that, obviously it was on the news and, and we were all hearing about it. Um, it. It affected me a little differently because my parents were in Italy and Italy was shutting down. Um, and uh, you know, I was on the phone with my parents. Uh, they were asking me, you know, they were staying out there for several months and they were asking me if they should come home uh, because Northern Italy at the time was shutting down. And uh, we made a collective decision as a family that they would come home. And they, they actually made one of the last flights back into JFK mm -hmm. uh, before they had to before they were quarantining people at an army base. So they were able to actually fly in and go home. And my mom recounts a story of when they were on the plane and she asked the stewardess or the flight attendant, I'm sorry, to say, you know, like, where are we going? And 
she couldn't tell her until they landed. They weren't sure what they were going to do with these passengers on the plane from Italy. And so I, I'll tell you, though, at that time, it still fe felt very distant. It didn't feel like it was something that was going to um, become what it was for, for us in America, in New York, in the medical healthcare world, or as a nurse. It, it just wasn't even um, probably conceivable because we've never seen anything like that. It felt like it was over there. So that's kind of what was up. It, it wasn't very urgent. So I want to give the audience a, a glimpse into your life. First off, you've been doing IC, you've been nursing how long at ICU how long? Um, so I've been a nurse for 23 years. Um, I worked my way up through the chain of nursing, if you will. I, I've, I've worked every level of nursing um, and many jobs. Uh, ICU has been, let's see, 12, at least 14, 15 years I've been in the ICU. From my perspective, having worked in healthcare all my life and with nurses, love nurses, can't live without them. They make me look good. Um, <laughs> but people who do intensive care nursing like you, you're like the Navy SEALs of nursing. <laughs> you're, you're, well, you're the real deal. I knew that's where I always wanted to be was an ICU nurse, right? So it's like, if you can do that, you can do anything. Um, Absolutely. And, and specifically where Larry was admitted, where I worked, uh, I'm allowed to mention, yes, yes. or no? Yep. Yeah, uh, um, um, Mount Sinai Morningside. In that particular ICU, what I loved about it was that we were a medical, surgical, trauma neurotrauma ICU, whereas a lot of hospitals have those ICUs broken up into um, separate units, right? Uh, we did everything. So, so there, as a nurse, you were exposed to absolutely everything from a, a bad train trauma to just a medical septic patient um, to head trauma. So, so there was a lot that uh, experience, I think, that nurses get over there. But it's the best. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So, you know, uh, like in the picture I want to paint is someone walks into your ICU first week of March. Um, what do you see? You see a central nurse's station, a lot of busy people. Everyone's in scrubs and, and stethoscopes. There are these uh, glass enclosed units that are for isolation and care. And, and it's all serious. Uh, and there's this control. It's it's a really it's high tech. It's busy, but it's very controlled. There seems to be some order to it. And is that kind of what life was like before uh, it became apocalyptic? Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, extremely controlled. So I'm not. I wasn't only just a staff nurse in the ICU where Larry was admitted, but I was the clinical leader, if you will, ANCC of the unit. So. Um, what that meant for me was that I was in charge of that order and control, <laughs> that clinical order and control. And, and actually, um, yeah, I mean, you obviously had your days and you can never anticipate true emergencies. Um, and actually before COVID, you know, just being a trauma unit in New York city, we did yearly mass disaster drills. Really? Um, and they were, they were, um, simulated obviously right but but as we got better at them over the years we had a great emergency uh director 
Um, and we would simulate these mass disaster drills just in preparation of, you know, a bombing or, you know, God forbid, a 9-11 or whatever. And it was pretty intense. Um, and even that, you know, and I would I would lead that and I was like sweating through the the through the um, through the simulation, you know, those those yearly simulations because it was chaotic, but it was still controlled. Like it was still, there was some form of order. There was some form of like a command center and who had vests on. So you knew who was running things, you know, that, that all was, that all was practiced for a long time. But aside from that, yeah, I would say the IC was a very well-oiled machine. Um, and our first COVID patient that came up went into one of our negative pressure rooms um, which helps to filter the air out, right? And so he, there was a COVID patient, but it, that was still very, very controlled. Like we had one patient in the glass isolation room. And, um, you know, I remember the nurse who went in and, and set them up and it was scary, but it was still very controlled. Larry, let me, let me, let me ask. I, I wanna, Larry, wait, 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 wait. I'm still trying to set a, <laughs> set a picture here and I want you to get in next. When you were admitted, when Larry was admitted to the hospital in, you know, New York City was one, the epicenter in the beginning. When he yeah. was admitted to the hospital in New York City, there were 23 deaths. When he was intubated two days later on 319, there were 67 deaths in New York City. Mm -hmm. By April 1st, it was over 2,000. Mm -hmm. By May 1st, it was over 15,000. So, Jessica, how long after you admitted Larry to the ICU did things get out of control? And what was going on? Just kind of recreate that for us. Um, <laughs> used to call that hell weeks of, yeah, it was the hell weeks. Um, uh, I would say days, it was days after Larry was admitted that things went, went crazy. And, um, uh, the, the influx of admissions, the rapidness of deterioration of patients, um, not having enough isolation rooms, negative pressure rooms, right? We only had two in a 24 bed ICU. We only had two when that started. Jess, I tell people I, 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 I'm very lucky that I was the second patient because had I been two weeks later, I'd be in a hallway somewhere, maybe. Correct. You know? Well, yeah. So Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> filled up immediately after Larry was admitted. He was obviously um, significant for me because he was the first person that I, I was in full PPE and remember like going in to um, settle him and admit him. And I think I recount somewhere in all my conversations about this that I remember distinctively uh, for myself closing the door, the glass door of the room um, obviously I was in full head to toe PPE, but Larry at that time was not intubated. He, so, so essentially he was breathing on a, a BiPAP machine, which forces air into the lung and forces air out. And so essentially he was aerosolizing this virus in the air that I was in the room. And it was the first time I remember thinking, um, that I actually could get this, this not knowing what it was and that I could die, right? Because I didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it was. Um, at the time Larry was admitted, I would say there was a palpable fear in the unit in terms of like, we didn't understand it. Uh, we didn't understand how 
fast, why patients were coming in so fast, why they were deteriorating so fast. Um, even things simple like, you know, picking up the phone without gloves at the nurse's station, you wondered, you know, am I going to get COVID that way? Like that's, that was the level of like uncertainty for us. Um, but, and, and Larry was the first time I remember feeling because our, our first COVID patient, I believe was intubated when he came up to us. Right. And so it's very different when you're dealing with someone that can talk. And like I said, aerosolizing this, this virus, um, in the room and you've got a, a mask on. And at the time too, I think if I recall, I try not to think about it all too much, but if I can recall, um, I, I think there was a lot of mixed messaging from hospital administration at the time about how to protect ourselves. I remember, and, and this is not a knock to anybody because I think we all just did the best we could, um, but I remember a lot of nurses at the time putting masks on um, before it was recommended uh, globally to do that. And I remember being called to a huddle, if you will, by administration and them telling us that we should not wear masks because we were going to scare the patients. <laughs> we were going to scare people that like, you know, and so we were told not to wear masks and obviously like they, the nurses got very upset and, and whatever, and people just did what they wanted. Um, but that was the messaging. And then it was like a couple days later and they were like, oh, well, we don't have enough masks. You can wear bandanas or something like around like, please. And then, and then I think everyone caught on real quick about the fact that like, you know, we were going to die. <laughs> so, so they wanted to give us masks, but, um, it's like I the mean, air raid drills when we were kids, right? You know, it was, climb it was, under your desk, climb under your desk. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. It was, it was an un real surreal kind of unfolding and um i liken it to like you know a war it, it was just it, it it was a bomb that went off immediately and it was pure chaos it was just pure chaos it, it was it was just patients deteriorating um and i would say in hindsight looking back the first wave of COVID was really only the time that that was significant. I would say between March and what, like somewhere mid summer, that was the first wave was, was sustained that way. The second one was a little different. Obviously we had more knowledge and we were dealing with it for a while, but that first wave, I don't know if I can even find English words <laughs> to, to well, really describe what happened. So I'm a third party calling every day every other day to find out about larry and i before i ever spoke to jessica for five or six phone calls i spoke to other people and they it was an air raid a real air raid it was it was fear apprehension exhaustion everybody sounded like they were uh, you know uh, victims of war themselves and um, which made me want to talk to them, like, how are you? What are you doing? Are you sleeping? Yeah. Are you, you know, because obviously they're under, undergoing a lot. And then one day I call and I get the head nurse, Jessica, and it's like, hey, Dr. Kush, how are you doing? What can I do for you today? It's like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? What is wrong with the Either she's nuts, oblivious, <laughs> or she is like General Patton. So, uh, I figured that out real quick. Um, and, and, and really what happened soon after was I, I called to tell Jessica 
they're going to deliver some pizza and some yeah. ice cream later on. She said, oh, Dr. Kush, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, I mm. have to do this because if you knew Larry Kelly, she said, oh, no, I know Larry Kelly. <laughs> I admitted him. <laughs> so you admitted him and there was a conversation. And all I know of the conversation is that you described him as being fit and tan. Oh, God. This is going to come back to haunt me the rest of my, or my life. age. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. For you. <laughs> Tell me what right, I was very emotional at the time. Okay. Right. <laughs> so I want to hear each of your versions of what that, give me a minute on the, what that conversation was when you were admitting. Oh, Jesus. I mean, God, sweet Jesus. Nobody lets me live this down. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Can I put this in context? Because Larry likes to take it out of context. Okay. <laughs> Here's why I said that. And, and actually, I'm going to tell you a little story behind it. Um, so Larry comes in and I think Larry, you just came back from Florida on a, from a vacation. So you were tan. <laughs> um, I will say fit for your age. <laughs> and I think that's how I described you. Let me clarify. Um, you did not appear to be somebody that was morbidly obese, that had a lot of comorbidities, whether you did or not, I didn't know versus, you know, things like maybe diabetes or some other medical, I'm just saying from visual, right? You came in and you looked, you, you looked healthy, right? And um, I think why that- Incredibly sexy. Okay. That was not in the chart, not in the chart. (laughs) Not in the chart. Um, however, (laughs) yeah, I did not write that to the president. Um, but I, 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 um, I seriously, I, 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 why it was significant, even though Larry likes to make fun of that all the time, it's significant because of how fast he deteriorated in front of my eyes with COVID, right? It wasn't like, you know, at the time, I think we were hearing like, oh, if you have comorbidities, if you have lung problems, if you can't breathe, if you already have immunosuppression or these other things, you're at high risk. Well, Larry didn't look like that to me when he came in. And so when he came in and then to see him, what I call pretty much half dead in two days, um, stuck with me. And actually, you know, I wrote that in a letter to the president of the hospital and hospital leadership. And I don't remember even why now I wrote that. (laughs) I don't remember when I wrote it or why I wrote it. You know, Um, that came up on my timeline a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember why I did that, but, but it was significant because it was the first time it was like, okay, this is not the picture of what they're telling us. The person who gets COVID looks like a B, um, this person for all intents and purposes who doesn't have a lot of comorbidities is literally dying in front of my eyes. Um, But our introduction was really just, I was in my internal probably world feeling a lot of fear, but still doing my job, which you get to know how to do as a trauma nurse. You just put the the thing on. And Larry, um, getting to know him now and his humor and what he's about was nothing like that. When I met him, you were still kind of, you know, trying to be jovial, but there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of like, and I remember, you know, like, uh, just you asking me if you, if I was going to help you breathe and telling you that I was going to take your blood. And I think it was even during that time you had gotten a call while I was with you that your daughter had COVID. 
right? Yeah. Like I was standing yeah. in the room when you got that phone call and, and you just changed, like immediately changed um, everything. It just changed and, and um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was intense. And I think it was intense because you were the first person that really, in my view, was not the picture of what we were getting on the news, if you will. And I was like, how did this happen? Like, how is this happening? It was, it was, it was surreal. Larry, what do you remember the conversation when you were admitted, when she's taking you in, asking those medical questions? I, I, I think I told this to Jess uh, months and months later. But, uh, you know, I when I was in rehab, let just jump to there. When I was lying on my back and I was couldn't move from the neck down is when George Floyd was killed oh, on yeah. TV. And... Mm -hmm. uh, I can't breathe became like a catchphrase. And I was lying there in rehab going, oh, that's exactly what I said. But, you know, George Floyd ran into who he ran into and I ran into Jessica. And I remember being in rehab, like getting very emotional that uh, I was lucky enough to run into somebody who helped me breathe mm -hmm. instead of, you know, George Floyd. But, uh, yeah, I, I, that's, Jack, it was a hard time. Everything happened so fast. Yeah. I was, you know, when they were, there was all these doctors and attendants over the top of me. They're going to vent me. They're going to vent you. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know. I'm terrified. And she's right. I was, I was terrified, but the hardest part for me, and I, 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 I talk to a lot of patients that have had open heart surgery, blah, blah, blah. I talk to a lot of people. People tell me their health problems now, like I have some sort of magic bullet, but the, uh, but to give myself over to the professionals was really hard for me, was really to, to say, I really hope you guys know what the hell you're doing. And just to go, okay, you can, you can put me out and, but that's so hard. And for me, because I, you know, I'm, I sort of like to, you know, keep control of my life. <laughs> control freak? No. <laughs> so, Jessica, you took him in. He went on BiPAP. You left. Would you say he was stable or unstable at that moment? Yeah, um, he was sick. Obviously, uh, prior to me leaving, he required BiPAP. And for people that don't understand what that is, we'll just call it like an uh, an external kind of um, intubation, if you will. It, it, it's supporting your breathing. It's the last line, if you will, before you get an airway put down your tube. So he was he was struggling to breathe, and he required that. Uh, I, if I recall, um, I, I feel like the hemodynamics were stable, mm -hmm. um, but but there was some labored accessory muscle breathing. Um, that was concerning enough. Um, so he's working hard at breathing. You go home, you're offered to, you come back two days later. What do well, you Well, I remember prior to me leaving, and again, you have to remember that I never had one specific patient because I was running the clinical side of the ICU. So if there were 24 rooms, I was in 24 rooms. Right. I was in 24 rooms, right? And so I was making my rounds before I was leaving and he had glass doors and I remember going in and I'm sorry, I didn't go in. I, I stood outside the room and I gave him like a thumbs up, like, 
You okay? He had your phone. He had his phone, which you can't talk on the phone when you're on BiPAP. Okay. But whatever. He had his phone <laughs> and he was in the room and he was settled at that point. Yes. And I went home. I was off for two days, which I'll just give you, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember now if it was just right before, I want to say maybe right after that, when I had two days off, I was in every single day for at least six, seven days straight. Like I was going in on my days off. Um, I didn't have a lot of time off after that, but, but yeah, I went home and I came back and I, as a charge nurse, you get report on the whole floor. So I got report, you know, you walk around to every room and I got report and I was stunned to say the least when I came back to see the condition that Larry was in. I, I was speechless. Yeah. And it was probably at that time that I was like, I, I think, well, I don't think I remember. I know saying to myself, like, I can't curse on this podcast, right? So I'll, I'll be careful. Um, what is COVID? What yeah. is this? What what is this? Because he looked like, you know, one of my patients who had been septic for four weeks, who we couldn't, you know, I mean, sepsis is obviously lethal, right? And but but usually it's like you you watch the it's not this fast. And within two days of me coming back, he was intubated on multiple um, life-saving drips. And so, I was shocked. So this is you quickly figure out this is a uncontrollable unknown monster what what happens internally in the icu and the staff how do you guys get it together and know what your marching orders are for tomorrow we didn't we didn't and 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 i'm i'm glad i told you about our mass casualty drills because i would say to people that would listen <laughs> whoever was listening at the time that this was you know with a mass casualty incident right or when you get you're preparing for something um, like that in the hospital, it ends, it ends, right? Like you have a, a short duration of influx and chaos and whatever, but it's over. Right. And um, Good lunch. this was a sustained mass casualty, casualty incident for, I think that's why I said the eight weeks were hell weeks for about two months straight like a nonstop mass casualty incident. And, and by that, I mean the number of admissions, the number of admissions that were deteriorating so quickly. And I'm talking ages between 40 and up, not, not, not your, just your comorbidity elderly patients. It was 40 year olds, no comorbidities, just unexplainable. We didn't have any rhyme or reason why room A wasn't surviving and room B was, we couldn't figure that out. We didn't know. It was just, it was mayhem. And at the time, um, we were simultaneously, aside from, from what we were doing, the hospital was trying to figure out how do I get supplies in? We were changing rooms so that every single room was converted to a negative pressure room. You can imagine that. <laughs> I mean, that, that alone is, is, unbelievable and that was simultaneously happening um it was do we have enough pumps where do we put these pumps nurses were terrified to go into the room but there was a duty and a call to receive these patients that came up um 
any order or control that we had was out the window. And I think it was just natural instinct. And I think it was during that time that all hierarchy kind of just dissolved. There was no like, oh, you're the chief trauma surgeon. <laughs> oh, you're the chief neurosurgeon. Uh-uh. No, it was like, we are healthcare workers and we are all going to figure this out together. And nurse, doctor, uh, nursing attendant, housekeeper, you know, all these people, it didn't matter. It was like, if you're a hand, if you're a body, if you have a thought, if you have whatever, we are collectively going to just figure this out. It, w- it was chaos. And I remember walking through, we have double doors to the ICU. There's no glass. And when you, you open the doors, they open automatically. And I remember walking in and I think it's on the film because I wore a GoPro, you just see equipment and like just massive pumps and equipment, everything all over the place. And you see just people running. So my shifts consisted of just like 14 plus hours straight of running. Yeah. Tell, tell about the garbage. <laughs> so um, at that time, obviously all elective surgery stopped. So um, we weren't doing all that stuff. So if you were a physician of any kind, um, a lot of them were taking over attending roles, right. In the, in the ICU, because the patients were just too much for one medicine attending to handle. So, um, there was a neurosurgeon, (laughs) I'm going to give him a shout out, actually, Dr. Neo, who was one of my favorites. He was young and just really smart and very kind to the nurses, but he was in a room. He was one of the medical attendings now, right? Because he wasn't operating. Uh, And so he was covering patients in the medical surgical ICU. And he was in a room. And I remember, I remember the room, it was in the surgical ICU, and the garbage was overflowing. And so, you know, at that time, we were so aware of like, where do we put our PPE and donning and doffing and all this stuff. It was just a lot. And he was in there and I knocked on the glass door, and I pointed to the garbage. And I said, change the garbage. We have nowhere to change our PPE, change the garbage. And he looked at me <laughs> and he did it. He changed the garbage, took the garbage out. He put the new bag in, you know, um, without question, he did it. And like that, that's the kind of level of hierarchy breakdown there was, um, you know, and he, he knew how significant that was for us. Cause we had to go in the room and like have somewhere to put this PPE. But he um, he changed the garbage. This you know great neurosurgeon that he was. So you know I always suggest that uh, you know my, through my whole experience, I my my respect for nurses and even people under you, yeah. the aides that attended me. Yeah, what it was they everybody. did, they do the toughest jobs, and I mean, I, they had to attend everything to me, and the. Uh, it's it, they don't get I was going back to me liking to be in control I don't like people having to wait on me you know um and so that was really hard for me and but I was a good patient I was told because I was always grateful and thank you I'm so sorry you have to do that you know the uh um but what you guys what you guys do all through is it's it's just 
and especially during COVID. Uh, and, and I think about actually you bring that up and, and just a shout out quickly to all those people who are nursing attendants and, and the housekeepers and all those people, you know, obviously the attention was on healthcare professionals, but think about how many of them had to go in those rooms and also didn't know what was going on and they weren't taking care of the patients, but they were facing every fear that we were facing and, um, and they did it. You know, we all, it was a team. It was just a team. It was a team across the board. There wasn't nurse, doctor, aide, housekeeper. It was just, we were there to fight. And, and look, some nurses were terrified and, and didn't want to do it and couldn't do it. And, and I don't judge that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were other, mm-hmm. some of them had medical conditions or I have friends at the time who are my very, very close nurse friends. So I'm still friends with today. I, I won't tell you the name of our group on text message, but they know who they are and you and um and and they had brand new babies they were breastfeeding in the hospital and going home to an infant and coming in every day and facing this and freaking out i mean we would fight over you know it's funny i'll, I'll tell this one story quickly can i say her name Yes. Yeah. All right. So, so, so we have a, there's about seven of us. We're in this um, group called the bitches. Okay. It's, it's, it's all nurses. It's all ICU nurses. And they're and, running and, the hospital. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> and we, and we, but wait a minute, we, we started this group. It saved my life during COVID because it was in this group that we were able to vent and cry and um, be sad and be angry about what was happening and all this stuff. And, and everybody was super supportive. Um, and there were two nurses in that group, I think, that had left our ICU, but still part of our group who weren't living what we were living. But um, Julia, you know, they she, she organized how to get us PPE and raised like thousands of dollars for a food fund and an Uber fund for all the nurses in the ICU. Like this was happening behind the scenes, mm. you know, like that was my group and we're still very, very, very close. And so we were, it was like a venting session and, and those of us living it were, were horrified. And those of us, them who were not, but trying to support us were amazing. And that's how they helped. And so Jenna had just had a baby and she was breastfeeding her and Beth. They were two nurses who just had babies. And I remember because I was the clinical leader, I like to say that, of the unit. <laughs> um, she was pissed off because the gowns, they had changed the gowns at that time. And not on purpose. I think the supply was just out, right? And they were really like permeable, if you will. They weren't like our other gowns. And she was scared. And she was, and, and it translated into anger mm. at me. <laughs> like she started yelling at me in the hallway about the gown quality, right? The, the, the PPE. And, and I was like yelling back going like, I don't control this. Like I can't help this. And I remember Dr. Wetterburn, who, you know, who did your surgery, uh, kind of got in the middle of the two of us. And, 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 you know, I said, here, you deal with her <laughs> because she's yelling at me and I have no control. And he did. Um, but it was that kind of like intense environment that it was like, I don't know who to yell at. This is unacceptable. I'm scared. This is not enough. And like, you just yelled at anyone that was around you. And I, I, I often say during that time, 
there was no filter. There was no professional filter anymore. Like, you know, if you're in a professional setting, it's like, gone are the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Okay, doctor, would you like to sit down? Like, no, we never did that. But I'm saying like, you know, gone are the days of we're like, oh, can you get this blood or do you have time? It was like, dude, change the garbage. Give me the drip. Hurry up. Like everyone was yelling at each other and you didn't take it personal. Jess, when you, you <laughs> earlier, you, you made the analogy of uh, being in war. And I, I, I say constantly that uh, a global pandemic is exactly what what you talk about. We've seen so many movies and we've talked to so many Vietnam vets who, who have a hard time talking about what they went through, that you needed that support group. It's like vets getting together with other vets and Correct. having a drink. Yeah. Amity Hall was your gathering place. Yes, it was. Amity Hall was your gathering place. Yeah, the and PTOH. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, the uh, it and I understand it too because it's I, why Jack and I are doing this podcast is, you know, Miracle Larry has a story, but everybody does. And COVID, I think the way to get through what we went through is to talk about it, is to talk it out, and just it's and true. A- but I I find that. Um- you're not wrong, but I find that you can't talk about it with people unless they understand what it was. It's very hard to explain to somebody who doesn't understand absolutely what it was like. And so so that's why I think our bitches group, ICU nurses, is still intact. And and ironically, we all left the ICU. Not not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ICU, but we all left that ICU. We've all done understandable. I'm still in the ICU and a couple of them are, but, and some for better doing awesome things, CRNAs, whatever, but we're still together. And I mm-hmm. think it's because, and, and actually I'll say during the second wave, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We had a little bit of lull in between the first and second, like things calmed down. And then we had like a, a, a surge again. And I'll never forget Adelie, who's now the ANCC in the ICU where you are, she's my dear friend. She's killing it over there. And, and she's in our bitches group. She looked at, <laughs> he looked at me and said, all she said was this, this feels like March. Mm. And that's all she had yeah. to say to me for me to understand what she meant. Now, if you say that to anybody else, they would not understand what that means. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said, I know. And it wasn't as bad as March. It was bad. It was not as bad as March. But all she had to do was look at me and said, this feels like March. Jessica, um, <laughs> I listened to all your, your podcasts and your many videos and the documentaries that you were involved in. They're wildly inspirational. And to, so always a treat to talk to you. But the one thing I got from those was your line of, of calm through chaos. and. And it was chaos. And in the first six months, there were 2,000 healthcare workers who died from COVID. Yeah. How did you How did you deal with that as far as a home life and going home and and hugging your kids and, and that sort of thing? What did you, what did you do? So, I mean, I, I think I'm a little different than a lot of people. So I don't want to speak for everybody on this because I think everybody handled it differently in their personal lives. Uh, for myself, nursing has always been a calling. Um, there was no question in my mind. 
it was like a burning building, right? The hospital was the burning building. And I felt like I needed to run there. That was just me. I can't speak for everyone, but that was just my, I felt like I needed to run there knowing that I had a home, but I knew what my calling was. Right. And so at the time of March, actually, my husband, Paul, uh, got COVID right around the time Larry had it. Um, and he was home and I remember he was working and he didn't feel good. And I, we, he bought us, I said, go buy a thermometer at the, <laughs> the deli or whatever. And, and he bought a thermometer and he was taking his temperature every hour and um, calling me. And, and finally, when it hit, like, I think it was 100.4 or something. I think it maybe it was 101. I don't remember, but we both made a decision. You got to get out of there because we didn't want to take the risk of like infecting anybody. And so he came home and obviously we got him tested and he was positive and um, he was quarantined to our bedroom. And my, uh, what was she, 10, 11 at the time, 10 maybe, Francesca, our daughter, uh, had to take care of him because I went to the hospital and I couldn't see myself sitting home. But at the same time, you know, she, I have a picture somewhere of her like doing the dishes on a chair. She's standing on a chair, like doing the dishes and like my giving daddy food through the door. And, and he and I would FaceTime um, and I got a pulse ox for him on his finger. And I wanted to see what his oxygen was. And, and I had a number in my head when I would get him to the hospital if I had to, but I told him otherwise he wasn't coming to the hospital. So like that was simultaneously happening when it broke out, but there was no way that I felt like I couldn't be at the hospital at the same time. So I was kind of doing both. Yes, I, 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 you know, my head's a little different in terms of, you said, you know, it's hard to talk about it. Um, You know, all those people banging pots and giving all that respect to healthcare workers. And then six months later, it's like, let's move on. And, uh, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't, you know, I, I joke. I'm sort of like Ellie Wiesel with the Holocaust. You know, I, I, there's a part of me that if we don't learn from what happened, it's going to happen again, that old adage. And uh, I, you know, I, I can't talk. I can't even listen to somebody badmouth their doctor. I can't, I can't sit next to somebody who says, ah, my doctor doesn't know what he's doing. I can't, I can't listen. I walk away. I just, you know, um, what, 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 what doctors and you guys put in every day and it's only to save lives is, uh, is, should never be forgotten. You guys. And, And actually this is a good segue into just mentioning that during that time, during those first eight hell weeks, a, a colleague of ours died too, actually. Um, one at our sister hospital in uh, Mount Sinai West. And um, our x-ray technician died. And that, that one was hard. So, so when the nurse died, he was a manager at Mount Sinai West. And we got word that he died from COVID and he was helping staff, obviously. Um, we took a moment of silence. I, we gathered everybody in the middle and we told them what happened. And, and that I had nurses who had panic attacks during the huddle who had to leave the unit. Um, they were terrified. And obviously we felt that it became like, so real, like, like I could die from this, but then we had, um, uh, Ooh, 
an x-ray tech who worked in our unit and um, he was older and probably didn't understand the need for proper PPE. He just never, there were a lot of things Mm. he didn't understand. And uh, the, the day before he left the ICU, I called his manager and I said, um, he shouldn't be in the ICU. It's not safe. And uh, so for the him. audience, the an X-ray tech to an, an ICU nurse is a little bit like an executive who has a secretary outside his door. I mean, arm in arm, you're together every day. Your personal friends, your work friends, yeah. you're oh, in yeah. the trenches together. So that kind of loss had to be shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, he never reported to work and someone checked on him and he died. So let's go quickly if we can. We're going to go fast forward a few weeks. Larry's not doing good. You know, well, we got to say, you know, just you and your team, one of the first to give steroids. Larry got steroids. You're one of the first to give Actemra, Tocilizumab, an IL 6 inhibitor. You were one of the first to actually flip him. Yeah. Describe what that proning and flipping is. Can, can, can I say something before she describes that? Yeah. I, I, I give you lots of kudos for the proning because I know that you were a big advocate. Prone him, prone him, <laughs> Well, here's the deal. Um, I, I'm not going to belabor this point, but um, so, oh, how do, Jack, how do I even go through this? It's like. Um, Start with just a decision. You were an expert at it. You had published on it. You taught right. other people so, how to do so, it. So, like, let's be honest, proning is not invented by Mount Sinai. It's been around since the 1970s, right? Like, right, it's, right. It's, it's a long, it's a long-standing thing. Um, it's had its place in medicine, and then lost its place, and had its place, and lost its place, right? And so, proning is essentially just flipping someone onto their their belly because the the thought is that they get more oxygenation to those those alveoli, which is where your gas exchange takes place. That's the medical part. So. Um, ironically, about a year and a half earlier, uh, our team in Mount Sinai, Morningside ICU, shout out to us because we really did a great job. We did simulation and we developed this whole policy and it was published and it was, it was um, international nursing magazine and it was, it was a national talk and, and our team did a wonderful job creating a policy around how to prone critically ill patients. And we're talking about patients that are not stable, have airways, are hemodynamically not stable. There's a lot that can go wrong. So there's a lot into it. And, um, oh, I want to tell a story, but it's so inappropriate. So I'm not going to do that. Um, so, <laughs> um, so That's okay. I'm sorry. I have a little bit of Larry Kelly in me. Is it so, about me? No, no, no. Okay, no. good. So, I was so, going to say, go ahead. No, 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 no. Um, I, I digress. So anyway, uh, so Larry, the, the day I came back, I'll never forget this. So he had the, there's certain reasons why you flip a patient, right? Poor oxygenation. Uh, we can't ventilate or oxygenate them. We're doing everything we can. We, we're out of moves, essentially, right? You have an airway already. What are we going to do? And I remember sitting with Dr. Gopal, he was an ICU attending, uh, Dr. Mohanraj, who everyone knows, an ICU attending, Dr. Shapiro, who was our medical director, and sitting in like a little huddle, and I was the nurse, and we were sitting there together talking about what we were going to do with Larry, because he was on like, I think 90, 80, 100% of oxygen already on the on a ventilator, and, and his blood gases weren't good, and 
we didn't know what to do. And, but he didn't meet all the criteria, I think, at the time to prone somebody because we were still going off different. We didn't know what COVID was. There was no criteria for COVID. So we were going off different criteria. And we decided at that moment not to prone him. We had a, we had a, like a little huddle about, should we do it? Shouldn't we do it? Should we do it? Should, like it was all discussion. We didn't do it. And then I think you got worse. And I went home. And when I came back, you were actually proned. You were flipped on your belly. And, um, and, and that saved a lot of people's lives in the ICU. And I'm just really proud of our team uh, because we were ahead of the curve. Uh, we were prepared to do this intervention um, because we had practiced it. We had worked on it. We had a policy. And in fact, we were like, you know, the sounding board for a lot of um, people across the country. As a result, I was getting calls mm -hmm. from Colorado, California, Florida, nurses calling me saying, teach me how to prone mm. quickly over the phone. And I was walking them through how to do this on the phone uh, because they had never done prone. And, and to people who are in medicine, I hate this because they disregard proning like, oh, it's no big deal. Like ORs. They do it all the time. Yeah, but that patient's hemodynamically freaking stable. I'm talking about a patient who's about to die mm. or morbidly obese on multiple hemodynamic drips with an airway. And we're trying to flip them, right? And so with lines and whatever. And so it just, it, it was pretty amazing. But we quickly adapted that uh, process. And I think it saved a lot of people, uh, believe yeah, it or not. Jack, let me just... I, I, there's always a need in me to, because uh, we talk about very difficult and painful stuff to, you know, I, I do believe a part of my survival is my sense of humor and the way I see the world. But I just have to jump to when I went back to visit that day, which to this day is still one of the most emotional days of my yeah. life. But Dr. Jennifer Fung, when she said to Mr. Kelly, she goes, up, I was part of your proning team. Can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She goes, what's the significance of your tattoos on your back? <laughs> just I'll never forget that. that was the question she wanted to ask. She said, they knew they had meaning. She knew they had meaning. She just wanted to. Know. Jessica, you saw the tattoos. What's the tattoos on his back? It's poker cards. Right? <laughs> and I thought, and that's when I was like, oh, this guy's cool, you know? And I, I remember that. Yeah. He, had, he has poker cards on his back. <laughs> so this par this podcast is called the Miracle Larry. It's this could be this could be called the Lucky Larry podcast because luck is when preparation meets opportunity. That's Jessica. Jack, remind me when we're off video to tell you the story I want to tell that I can't tell on here. All right, all right. <laughs> yes, yes, you have to come back. Please, you have to come back because I know. No, we, we got to end with one, just one more. One, no, no, we'll, 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 we can end at this point. Uh, well, and we'll come back in the next episode and we'll talk about reunions and yeah. how these guys get together after Larry mm -hmm. wakes up and walks out of the hospital. So, but Larry, we just had a reunion. You just got a 50 year reunion. You, what was that like meeting all your classmates? And there were hundreds of them, each of whom knew your story and were moved by it back then. What was it like to meet them now this weekend? I, Jack, it was, a, <laughs> it, it was a, my whole life at certain points is very surreal. Um, that I'm, I'm, I'm still not totally convinced I'm not dead. Um, <laughs> 
I, you know, this, I, I always have that big question mark because it, it, the, it was weird, Jack. I, the love that was shown was just, uh, it was overwhelming. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, it, it, it's almost like I teased Jan, who wrote the article for the Times, that I'm the only person I know who has read their obituary who's still alive, and uh, and all the things people wrote about me on on um, Facebook and other venues, and uh, but because they all thought I was dead, <laughs> so they all said good stuff, you know. So I, I read this stuff, and they I, were lying. Oh, I was a guy. We're selective, but but going going back to the people that have known me since like you, Jack, since kindergarten, um, it, it's just, you know, it's beyond words. It's beyond words. It's uh, um, that it, it was, it was, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it again when I can put it in words. I didn't expect this question yeah. at the end of this, you know, this, there's a lot of thoughts that are running around my head all, all right. the time. And uh, I, I just want to say one light note jess earlier talked about early times of COVID, grabbing the phone and not knowing if you were going to get it from the phone well when i was conscious and and at the third spot before i went into rehab i was sent downtown i was shipped around you know i was sent downtown to this new unit and uh yeah i had lost my movado watch my wallet with all my credit cards my 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 diamond earring my my uh everything my cell phone and all my clothes and i you thought, sound like a gigolo but go ahead i i i, I thought <laughs> i thought that son of a bitch jessica stole my she she stole my stuff she, stole my stuff. she didn't I think said, you were gonna I live said, i, I found knew? out later i was so early yeah. they burned it all oh really i didn't even yeah. know that yeah they burned it all. The stuff Get that was the hell out of here. I didn't even because know they that. didn't know how it spread. I was Holy early. They didn't know how it spread. I didn't so know everybody's, that. Everybody's belongings that yeah. came in. I'm thinking those nurses. They got my Mavado watch. They got myself. You were a gigolo. <laughs> well, indescribable is our guest Jessica Altanero. <laughs> Jessica, thank you for taking the time. Um, and recanting uh, this great history together. So, will you come back? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. We have to talk to her agent. All right. We're going to. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you can All do right. that. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, Jess. Love Bye. you. Love you. <laughs>